Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we come back to our study of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. Numerous studies in the last five years have shown that there is a definite decline in marriage, not just in our nation, but in the evangelical church as well. Fifty years ago, it used to be that in a typical evangelical church, you'd find 75% of the adults married. Now, 50 years later, that number has plummeted all the way down to 52, 75% down to 52%. Part of the reason is certainly with the decline of marriage among young people. Young people in general and even evangelicals are following suit. Young evangelicals are delaying marriage or many young are not even marrying at all as there is a steady decline in um, in the perspective and the value of marriage overall. But the second part of that is certainly uh, a contributing factor as well, which is the overall rise in the divorce rate, not just in our nation, but even among evangelicals. Evangelicals today are twice as likely to be divorced as they were 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you would on average find about 7% of evangelicals who had experienced divorce. That number has risen all the way up to 17% in our own day. And of course, the research shows that along with things like divorce, people suffer through that in so many multiple ways. They obviously suffer emotionally as they go through sense of isolation and emotional exhaustion that comes along with, with uh, uh, divorce and uh, mental health issues that are attendant for that, that sometimes stretch on for years. People obviously spend years and years suffering and trying to recover financially from not just the legal costs, but the cost of dividing uh, all of their assets now between two separate households. They spend years trying to recover relationally as they find divorce has an impact, not just on their friends, but on their family and even on their relationship with their own children as it changes the dynamic. And of course, they spend years and years trying to recover spiritually as it bears itself out in the report, people who are divorced are twice as likely to drop out of church altogether as they are as, a, as compared to their non-divorced counterparts. In many ways, those trends are, are just, as I said, mirroring those in broader society. They're mirroring the decline of marriage overall. They're mirroring the rise of divorce overall. But it's good. this commitment to marriage has declined, both in our nation and in the church, so has a commitment to presenting a biblical uh, articulate message on marriage and divorce. Perhaps out of an eagerness to be sensitive to those who have suffered through divorce, which is certainly welcome, but perhaps out of that sensitivity, the evangelical church has has uh, sort of restrained itself or stepped away from uh, regularly or even publicly ever addressing this issue. Among church leaders, though, there has certainly been a shift towards, uh, towards hiding or repressing this message. Certainly it can be unpopular, but it doesn't make it unnecessary. It is unpopular, but still it needs to be said that the Bible has a very clear message as it relates to marriage and divorce, and Jesus makes it clear. Even as we come to our passage this morning, he takes up this issue in Matthew chapter 5 as he's addressing a number of issues related to our personal lives, our spiritual lives, a number of issues related to the law. Now, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount for a couple of weeks, and we've been taking note, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 5, how Jesus is going through a number of issues where he's setting contrasts, contrasts between Jewish teaching and the true teaching of the Old Testament. He's making these contrasts between what they have heard taught from their religious leaders 
versus what he says, but what he says is not anything unique or new. What he says is just an upholding or a reiteration of the biblical standard, the Old Testament standard, the standard and the teaching of the law. As a matter of fact, this, this goes all the way back to what he said all the way back in verse 17 when they assumed, apparently, that Jesus was trying to undermine the law or set aside the law because his teaching contradicted their teaching. But Jesus tells them, don't assume that I came to set aside the law, to undermine the law or anything. I didn't come to do any of that. Not one stroke of the pen, one not, not one dot of the letter will pass away until all is fulfilled. And then beginning in verse 21, he gives these series of contrasts, which are actually illustrations of how religious leaders were misinterpreting or suppressing the Old Testament all out of an interest to bolster their own claims of righteousness, to establish their own sort of uh, pretense of faithfulness to the law. But their righteousness was no righteousness at all. It was a facade. In fact, Jesus says in verse 20 that if you have any hope of ever, ever entering into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness is going to have to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's going to have to exceed that that they claim through their own interpretations of the law. And then beginning, as I said in verse 21, Jesus systematically dismantles their twisted teachings, their false notions of righteousness. You remember in verse 21, he started first of all with this issue of anger and murder. And then following after that, he addresses the issue of lust and adultery. The scribes and Pharisees prided themselves that they weren't lawbreakers, they weren't murderers, they weren't adulterers, but Jesus is pointing out to them that the true intent of the law was to show that even if they hadn't committed outward murder or outward adultery, they had the heart of a murderer and they had the heart of an adulterer. But he doesn't leave it just at that. He goes even further as we get to verse 31 and 32 today to take the issue of adultery and showing not only do they have the heart of adulterers, but they are adulterers in fact. In reality, they are adulterers. Their adultery, though, they have sanctioned. They have justified. They've tried to cover it under the rubric of divorce. And this is Jesus' point, that their perception of divorce, their understanding of divorce, does not excuse them from the charge of adultery because it is simply the sanctioning of serial adultery. This is what he says in verse 31. It was said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him, give her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is still, still addressing this issue of adultery, but addressing it under the rubric of divorce and making it clear that through a policy of easy divorce, these religious leaders had so twisted God's word that they were actually using it to justify what was essentially marital unfaithfulness and to try to maintain their claim to righteousness even as they pursued it. Now, to understand this, to understand how Jesus is is uh, doing this, we want to unpack these couple verses. There's a lot here, obviously. It's a big issue. But I think we can understand it if we break it apart into three sort of notions or three ideas. First of all, to understand Jesus' teaching here, you have to understand the Jewish provision for easy divorce. The Jewish provision for easy divorce. This is what Jesus references there in verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
Now that summarizes the view that was popular at Jesus' time. And in many ways, the divorce is just a matter of paperwork. As long as you understand that, as long as you understand the need to give a certificate of divorce, a man could divorce his wife with relative ease. You could divorce her for almost any reason. In fact, this is, this is the way sometimes it was stated. When you go over to Matthew 19, verse 3, and the scribes are, are trying to lure Jesus into a discussion that they know will make him unpopular. They, they want to lure him into a discussion of divorce because they know it will open him up to criticism. And so they ask him in Matthew 19, 3, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause at all? This was their sort of summary of the popular opinion. It was easy divorce. Jewish men had a right to divorce their wives for any cause, what we might call a no-fault divorce, and it was rampant. Now, all of this sort of summarized their interpretation, but their interpretation, let's be honest, let's be clear, their interpretation was all designed to bolster their sense of self-righteousness. It was all designed to give them a biblical cover-up to allow them to pursue their sinful desires, to allow them to break up their marriages while at the same time maintaining the appearance of following God. Even when they're directly rebelling against Him and what He desires by pursuing divorce, by their self-serving interpretations, they were able to to justify their lust and actually sanction their selfish pursuit of new sexual liaisons. Now, a lot of people trace this back to a popular rabbi named Hillel who lived about 20 years before the time of Christ. And he was the one who, in the uh, sort of... uh, uh, context of a debate with another rabbi named Shammai, he was the one who articulated uh, what was widely understood to be the Jewish opinion at that point. He basically suggested that a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. And he, he arrived at this sort of interpretation out of the, the book of Deuteronomy 24, uh, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which speaks to the issue of, of, uh, of remarriage. But this is what it says in Deuteronomy 24, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds, uh, she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of the house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and a latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. And if the latter man dies, who takes her to be his wife? Now you have to understand all of those statements are conditions. If this happens, 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 if this happens... You have to get through all of those conditions before you actually get to the command that you find in Deuteronomy 24, verse 4. Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. In other words, this was all a twisting of God's Word, from which Hillel created this idea of easy divorce, which promoted the notion that you could divorce your wife for any cause. Now, first of all, he does this by focusing on this key phrase in the conditions that are laid out, which says that if any husband finds some indecency in his wife, it's a It's a a fairly vague phrase, but Hillel interpreted that to mean any kind of disappointment in your wife. It could be as simple as her letting her hair down in public or talking to another person that you didn't want her to talk to or 
or serving even indecent food, which he says in some cases could be too salty or just be overcooked. But any indecency, anything that you find unfavorable, he created this notion that you could divorce her for any of those causes. Now, while most people uh, sort of center their, their, their focus of this discussion on Hillel shortly before the time of Christ, the reality is that this notion of divorce existed many, many years before Hillel ever came along. In fact, there have been, through archaeological uh, digs, there have been discoveries of dozens and dozens of these divorce certificates which were written sometimes hundreds of years before the time of Christ. It was apparently something that had long-standing precedent in Jewish society. And not only that, but hundreds of years after the time of Christ, it would also be codified in the Mishnah, in the, in the rabbinical writings, as they continued to perpetuate this idea of a husband being able to divorce his wife for any reason at all. In other words, this was widespread, and these people were using this all the time. This was the teaching that they used to, in, to justify what was essentially their own sinful desires while still claiming to follow God, to be able to say that they're actually holding to the Scripture while at the same time they're pursuing their lusts. By the way, in all these divorce certificates that have been discovered... There's always a very clear statement that not only is this a divorce, but there's the clear right, always stated very clearly, there's the clear right to remarry because in those days, that's why you divorced. So you would divorce because you were desiring to marry someone else. They didn't uh, esteem or uphold or really, uh, you know, even value uh, singleness, certainly not like we do today. So these were always sort of uh, uh, assumed along the way that you were divorcing in order to remarry. Now, as I said, this is all twisting of the Scripture, twisting of Deuteronomy 24, because the point of that passage was never to prescribe divorce, certainly wasn't to command divorce. In fact, the point of all of it was actually to regulate remarriage. He only mentions the divorce as a sort of background to why someone would actually want to remarry their previous spouse. In other words, the mention of divorce was a part of all of those successive condition clauses before he actually gets to the command. Moses was simply explaining that if you did insist on divorce, then after you did that, you could not turn around and return to your original spouse if maybe the second marriage goes bad because that would be an abomination. But the rabbi's focus was, instead of on the real intent of the law, instead of on the real design that God had for marriage, instead of really on any of that, their focus was on what they perceived to be this exception. In other words, it really missed the point of the text. It majored on the minor and thereby came away with a misunderstanding, a distorted view of God's plan. Which leads, in verse 32, to the second element we need to have here to understand Jesus' teaching. First of all, you have that sort of Jewish uh, distortion of, or Jewish provision for easy divorce. But then in verse 32, Jesus reiterates God's prohibition against divorce. Just like he did with Adultery, just like he did with uh, anger and murder, he offers this sort of corrective to their misunderstanding of the intent of the law. You've heard it said in verse 31, but in verse 32, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Again, this isn't new. Jesus isn't expanding on anything or offering anything new. He's just reiterating the point of the Old Testament. This was the standard that God had set out, that with the exception of cases of sexual immorality, every divorce is a rebellion against God's design. That's the point. 
In fact, when he takes us up, and you can flip with me over there to Matthew 19 to look at it yourself. When Jesus takes up this issue or is presented with this issue in Matthew 19, when he's questioned about this in Matthew 19, 3, he takes it all the way back to the very beginning uh, when God created Adam and Eve. He takes it back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He answered the Pharisees in 19.4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? In other words, at the very beginning in in Genesis chapter 1, when God created Adam and Eve, he didn't create a single man, Adam. He didn't create a single man and multiple women. He created one man and one woman. So there was no other possibility for marriage. There was just simply two people who were brought together into a union. In fact, he goes on to quote that in verse 5. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he's taking this all the way back to God's original design to establish what God wanted, which was this idea of permanence. This isn't a joining together of two people in a partnership, but it's the joining together of two people into a new oneness, an indivisible unit. God makes it crystal clear that this is his design. In fact, Jesus sort of extrapolates here in verse 6, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, you want to understand this issue of marriage? You want to understand this divorce? God said he made two into one, period. It was God's law. It was God's intent. If you just look at what God did to create a man and a woman and design them to come together and to cleave together In fact, the word cleaving in the Old Testament is a word that sometimes is used for plastering. It was, in the um, Hebrew sense, it was as close a word as you could get to cement. They come together and they cement themselves together into this exclusive relationship, which in its design is supposed to provide unique companionship, a source of mutual strength, as well as a source of children and childbearing. All of those things is exactly what God designed it to be. And if the Pharisees were truly interested to understand what God was teaching, if they're truly interested to understand this issue, that's where they would begin. If they wanted to understand what God's desire was for marriage and its permanence, the answer's right there. Of course, the problem is that's not what they desired. And Jesus knew that. Their desire was not to understand God's will and then yield themselves to God's will their desire was to justify themselves to figure out how they could divorce their spouse for any reason at all and so the law became for them not a standard by which they could bend their will to the will of God The law became a tool for them to use to justify themselves. They studied the scripture not to really understand it and yield themselves to it and have the evil motives of their heart exposed, but they studied the scripture to focus on the things which would help them escape blame. And so they focused on what they felt like was the narrow wording that justified their divorce. So Jesus takes them all the way back to the original design, a one flesh relationship. Now, taking all that and going back to Matthew chapter 5, this yields us incredible insight into what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5. In fact, there are three conclusions that, that can kind of 
be seen here that flow directly out of that original understanding of, of a marriage in the book of Genesis. First of all, because this is true, if you divorce your spouse, you make them a victim of adultery. That's what Jesus says here in verse 32. He uses the passive voice, which has caused a lot of problems for translators. The ESV translates it as, you make her commit adultery. But that really doesn't make sense because if your spouse, say if your wife who is uh, not wanting to divorce, but you decide to divorce her, if she decides to remain single, never remarries or anything like that, how in the world could you ever accuse her of being guilty of adultery. It doesn't make any sense at all. But the issue is that in English, we don't have a passive sense of the word adultery. We only have the active sense. We, we don't have a, a way of really communicating being adulterated against, which is why translators have struggled with this. But the idea seems to be Not that you force your spouse to commit adultery, but that you make them involuntarily a victim of adultery. That's the passive sense. In fact, that's the the way the NIV translates it and seems to get it right. And and it kind of goes, goes hand in hand with... Uh, what is really the second implied result here, which is the fact that if you leave your marriage, that you yourself, uh, going and remarrying, are committing adultery. In other words, divorce and remarriage, uh, although you may have some certificate in your hand, although you may get some sort of piece of paper from some governing authorities, in God's eyes, you are still bound to that original covenant no matter what your piece of paper says. And so therefore, for you to go and have some sort of sexual relation with someone else in a second marriage is a violation of your first covenant, and it makes you an adulterer, and it makes your spouse a victim of adultery. You may go around and say, well, you know, I'm I'm the victim here. If you just knew how terrible things were, how terrible things were, guess what? Scripture says you're not the victim, at least in terms of the adultery, You've actually made your spouse the victim, and you're the guilty party because your divorce is illegitimate. Because any sexual activity apart from that with your original spouse makes you guilty of adultery, and you're declared to be an adulterer. And thirdly, by implication, anyone who marries you or marries your spouse after your divorce is guilty of adultery. So Jesus says there, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, because in God's eyes, they're still married to their original spouse. And so the sexual activity in that second marriage would technically be adultery. Now, all that makes sense if you just read the book of Genesis. All that makes sense if you just understand what God originally said about two people becoming one. That's God's view of marriage. That's God's view of divorce. And that's the way Jesus presents it here. That's the way he presents it in Matthew chapter 19. It's the way he presents it in Luke 18. It's the way he presents it in Mark 10. Which, by the way, in Luke 18 and Mark 10, he doesn't even bother uh, 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 bringing up the exception clauses because the focus is always on God's original design. But all of it, of course, raises a question. If that is God's original design, then why in the world does the Bible even speak about this issue of divorce? I mean, why even sort of bring it up? Why did Moses even bother legislating second marriages if divorce was never supposed to be a reality to begin with? Well, this is exactly over in Matthew 19. This is exactly what the disciples ask. When Jesus is teaching all this, explaining all this, they ask him in Matthew 19, why then did Moses command to give your wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did that happen? 
Well, to begin with, Jesus exposes their twisting by pointing out that Jesus that Moses never commanded any of that. In fact, Jesus takes their question and responds to it, but changes the wording to align with the scripture. And he answers them in Matthew 19, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not this way. So according to Jesus, Moses made this sort of uh, provision, if you will, because of the issue of hardness. You say, well, what does that mean? What it means is that Israel had hardened their heart against God's word. They had hardened their heart against God's law. Some people think that he's talking about hardness of heart between husband and wife. That's not the case at all. He's talking about what was happening in the Old Testament. And what was happening in the Old Testament is that when Moses himself had gone up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and God was inscribing it with the, with the finger of his hand, you shall not commit adultery, or he was inscribing in Deuteronomy, excuse me, Exodus 20 verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. At that very moment, down at the foot of the mountain... Israel was playing the harlot, not only with false gods, but literally among themselves, they were engaging in rampant sexual immorality. And not only did God command that you shall not commit adultery, but he goes on in Leviticus 20 and says, if there's a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with a friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. This was God's standard. This was God's design. He designed from the very beginning that marriage would be the bringing together of two people into one, into an indissoluble union that could only be dissolved by the death of one of the spouses. Now, that death might happen naturally, or it might be the result of one of the spouses engaging in sexual immorality and being put to death. But either way, the marriage is dissolved by the death of one of the spouses. But here's the issue. Israel was so hardened in their heart against the law of God that for that law to be carried out in its sort of straightforward definition, would have essentially decimated the population of Israel. Because sexual immorality was not just some sort of rare event in the history of Israel. In fact, it it went on all the time. Psalm 95 tells us that Israel, within days of walking out of the sands of Egypt, within days they had already hardened their heart against God. While God was giving the law on Sinai, they had hardened their hearts against Him. They were a hard-hearted people. Their, Their hearts were like stone. They quickly turned aside not only to idolatry, but they quickly turned aside to adultery. And a strict observation of the law would have surely meant that an entire generation of Israel would have suffered the death penalty. As a matter of fact, in some cases they did. In Numbers 25, while they were out in the desert, we're told that there were 24,000 Israelites who had engaged in adulterous relationships with Moabite women, which the Lord struck down in a single day. 24,000 suffered the penalty of death. This was an incredibly hard-hearted people. The result of all this was that in practical reality, God wanted to show mercy so that so many people wouldn't have to die. And so he made a provision for the original Marital, marital covenant to be dissolved not through the death of a spouse 
but through a provision called divorce. It was an act of mercy. It was an act of grace. Divorces were allowed to free the innocent spouse from that corrupted marriage, but also spare the adulterer from death, from the death penalty. Back over in Matthew chapter 5, all this takes us really to the third point in understanding Jesus' teaching on divorce, which is really this, this idea of a legitimate divorce, or what we might call the necessary prerequisites for a legitimate divorce. Because Jesus references this sort of exception, this issue of of, uh, marital unfaithfulness. And he talks about that, that if you do this, except for the cause of sexual immorality, which applies both to the divorces and the remarriage. In other words, if anyone divorces his wife in order to marry another, except in the case where she has already committed adultery then you make her a victim of adultery. Or whoever marries a divorced woman, except in the case where her marriage was dissolved because of sexual immorality, you commit adultery with her. So this exception clause is the same as you would find essentially what was given in the Old Testament. And Jesus is just extending the graciousness of God, making allowances for the innocent spouses to be released from their marriage covenants if their husband or their wife is guilty of sexual immorality. Now, when Jesus uses this phrase, he he uses the phrase, except in the case of sexual immorality, not except in the case of adultery. Those are two different words, uh, especially in the Greek. He goes on to talk about adultery in the second half of verse 32, Uh, making someone commit adultery or committing adultery, but he uses the word sexual immorality or or the word porneia in the Greek language to talk about this exception clause. And the word porneia is, we might say, sort of a general word for sexual sin. Adultery is very narrow. It talks about sexual sin between married people. Porneia is broader than that. It talks about sexual sin of multiple sort of uh, components. And And uh, uh, Jesus is probably using that terminology because in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24, when Moses was talking about this legislation of remarriages, he himself uses a general and a broad term. It's translated some indecency. Uh, It's uh, sort of a general word in the Hebrew, but in the Greek, he uses a word that specifically talks about shameful deeds. Shameful deeds. That's the Septuagint version. Which, by the way, that shameful deeds is used throughout the Septuagint in every case to talk about shameful sexual deeds. Not oversalting some food or something. It talks about Adultery, it talks about prostitution, it talks about incest, it talks about molestation. But all of it is some sort of shameful sexual idea. So Jesus picks it up, probably uses that general word the way that Moses uses it to sort of match up what he's saying with what Moses had said to make it clear that he's expounding the Old Testament. Some people, however, have taken that and jump to the conclusion that by using this broader term, Jesus must be opening up the door to something that goes beyond adultery, something that goes beyond even sexual activity. He must be opening up the door to talk about things like, back in verse 28, lust. Because remember, he said that if anyone looks at someone of the opposite sex and has lust in their heart, that they are guilty of adultery. And so this must mean that all kinds of sexual misconduct, even that which is just taking place internally within your heart, even those sort of, the sort of uh, 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 situations where a husband is lusting after someone or a wife is fantasizing for someone, those situations where your spouse is caught up maybe in pornography or whatever, all of those things must open up the door for divorce. That would be the natural sort of penalty since Jesus has already equated that lust with adultery. 
But again, as, as, I, as I pointed out even last week, all of that misses the point of what Jesus is saying here. Because what he was saying back in verse 28 when he was talking about lust in your heart and being sort of representative of a heart of adultery, none of that was in order to equip you so that you could take that out as a weapon to accuse other people. You understand what he's doing here is he's actually trying to prevent that kind of self-righteousness. What he's actually doing is not suggesting that now you have a weapon by which you can accuse your spouse of being unworthy of the marriage. What he's done is he's actually shown that you yourself are guilty, that you yourself ought to be confessing. In other words, the byproduct of verse 28 is not an accusation against someone else. The byproduct of verse 28 ought to be you confessing your own sinful heart. And he certainly wasn't trying to suggest that those things that take place in our heart ought to result in identical penalties, external, real penalties on the outside, the same way the physical act would result in the penalties, because otherwise, back in verse 22, when he starts talking about anger, being like the heart of murder, then the natural consequence would be what? That every time you're angry, you should be taken immediately to the gas chamber. But you wouldn't apply the verse like that because you know, you know that's not what Jesus is getting at. You know intuitively that he's not suggesting that those inward attitudes ought to result in the same sort of outward penalties. And so it wouldn't even make sense to try to take what Jesus said about inner lust in verse 28 and suggest that therefore that meets the qualification down in verse 32 and that you can divorce your spouse simply because they have been struggling in an area of lust. It just undoes everything that Jesus is trying to emphasize here. He's not trying to bolster the pharisaical idea of easy divorce. He's not trying to, to enhance their, 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 their tools to be able to find ways out of their marriages. Jesus mentions this exception clause because he understands the fundamental nature of the marriage covenant as God designed it in the garden. And he understands why God allowed for the dissolution of marriage bonds in the case of sexual immorality. And he understands that while there was originally a death penalty for those physical acts of adultery, God made allowances for divorce. He understands all of that. And so he just simply acknowledges God's grace and God's mercy through all of these sort of provisions God would allow in this situation when there has been physical acts of sexual sin whether it's adultery whether it's molestation uh, whatever whatever it is some sort of sexual um, indecency the Old Testament by the way Deuteronomy 24 emphasizes sort of a public nature it's publicly it's a publicly known indecency so he he, he, he points out that this then would free the innocent spouse from the charge of adultery if they seek a divorce and remarriage. Now I should add, just like Jesus was emphasizing Matthew chapter 9, none of this is obviously commanded. None of this is required. In fact, there have been many cases where the sin of sexual immorality has devastated a marriage, but in God's grace and God's mercy, couples have endeavored to overcome the damage and rebuild the foundations of the, the marriage commitment that they have to one another. Even in the Old Testament, of course, we have the, the book of Hosea that presents one of the most beautiful pictures of the never-ending and enduring grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of God that battles through some of the most horrific uh, stories of sexual immorality and, and maintains a marriage covenant between God and Israel. So sexual immorality certainly will allow for divorce. It doesn't necessarily mandate it. 
And Jesus wants to acknowledge that. By the way, you want to know what's mandated in those kinds of situations. The only thing the Scripture really mandates of you, if you are a spouse who has been a victim of adultery, really the only thing the Scripture mandates is your forgiveness. If you're guilty, if your spouse is coming to you and asking for forgiveness, you must forgive as Christ forgave you. That's what the Scripture mandates. doesn't mean you have to trust. Trust has been broken. It can be devastatingly broken. It, doesn't ha- it can't be, as a matter of fact. It, it, it can't be restored with just sort of the, the flip of a switch. It takes a long, long, long time to rebuild that kind of trust when it's been devastated like that. But the issue isn't trust. The issue is forgiveness. And you're commanded to grant forgiveness to those who are asking forgiveness of you, to set aside the bitterness in your heart, to maintain some form of Christian community with them if they're a brother or sister in Christ. Even if you choose, according to what's in the best interest of you and your family, even if you choose to have a divorce, you still have to do it with abundance of forgiveness in your heart. So Jesus acknowledges all this. That was what God established And nothing has changed. That's not the end of the story though. Because as the disciples of Jesus began to grow. And as the church was established. This issue of divorce took on different dimensions. Especially as believers found themselves in what you might call mixed marriages or marriages with unbelievers is what I'm talking about. Those who had unbelieving wives, those who had unbelieving husbands, those who rejected the gospel and rejected their Christian spouse, in some cases even wanting out of the marriage, that had to be dealt with. And Paul actually addresses this issue over in the book of first corinthians chapter 7 and if you have a moment turn over there with me because we want to look at that only to emphasize that when paul comes to address this issue in first corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 through 15 when paul comes to address this issue in that chapter what he tells us is exactly the same thing that jesus has already told us He just reiterates the same teaching that you find in the Gospels and in the Old Testament. Paul is writing this, obviously, because people are asking him. In fact, he says it back in verse 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the things about which you wrote. So some people had written a letter to the Apostle Paul, and they had asked all kinds of questions. And in the letter, there were people who were obviously asking about getting out of their marriages. They were in unhappy marriages, they were in difficult marriages, they were in dissatisfied marriages, and obviously they were contemplating the possibility of leaving. They no doubt had begun to convince themselves that somehow God would actually want them to do this, that He would actually want them to divorce their spouse. Maybe they came to the conclusion that somehow they could bring more glory to God. Maybe they figured out in their minds or contemplated in their minds that they might be able to serve God better if they weren't shackled to this marriage any longer. Maybe they convinced themselves that they would actually be more spiritual if they could get out of their unhappy situation that somehow if they could just get somewhere there were, where they didn't have the sort of daily pressure, where they didn't have the daily conflict, the daily tension, then, finally then, then they could focus their heart on God the way that they want to. Who knows, but, but they had these reasons going through their head about why they wanted out of this. And Paul comes to tell them in verse 10 that no matter what the message is that you're trying to give to yourself... God's word is clear. Verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, this isn't something new with me. I'm just restating what the Lord already stated. And what did the Lord state? The wife should not separate from her husband. 
And verse 11, and the husband should not divorce his wife. It's what God said. Paul says, it's not coming from me, that's coming from God. Plain and simple, that's his message. So there's no question what God's will is for you on this matter. He does not allow a wife or a husband to divorce their spouse, except, of course, in the case where there's been sexual unfaithfulness. Paul really doesn't even address that because he's not really intending to give a detailed treatise on divorce. He's simply reiterating God's design that in cases, except in the case where there might have been adultery, But in cases where there's just dissatisfaction, there's just disappointment, there's unhappiness, there's discontentment, in those cases, Paul is saying, God's will is clear. Even if you're in a dissatisfied marriage, you cannot divorce. Someone might come along and say, but, 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 but you don't understand. I'm married to an unbeliever. What if I'm married to an unbeliever in that situation? Wouldn't God want me to leave? Wouldn't He want me to be married, to be yoked together with someone that I could join arms with and someone that I could sort of work together for the kingdom and the glory of God? Wouldn't it it be better if I went out and found a Christian wife or a Christian husband? I'm sure God would want me to be happy. I mean, He wants marriages to be happy. Wouldn't He want me to be in that kind of a marriage? Doesn't He want me to be out of this sort of constant conflict over my faith? For those people, Paul has the same message. The same message. It doesn't change. Look what he says in verse 12. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, I'm about to sort of make this clear. This is not something that was directly addressed. This was not an angle that was directly addressed by the Lord. But let me make it clear to you that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. It doesn't change. If you have an unbelieving wife, it doesn't change. You cannot divorce her. And verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. It doesn't change. All of this is, is, is exactly what God's message is. God's message is the same. If you're in a dissatisfied marriage, whether you're dissatisfied with a spouse who calls himself a believer or whether you're dissatisfied with a spouse who calls himself an unbeliever, you're not allowed to divorce. Obviously, these people were contemplating this. Paul wouldn't address it They wouldn't have put it in their letter. Paul wouldn't have to turn around and address it if they hadn't been contemplating it. These were people who felt isolated. These were people who felt unhappy. The bonds of their love, the bonds of their marriage had changed, had dissolved. Some of them felt, if not physically abandoned, they felt emotionally abandoned. They felt trapped in a marriage and they wanted to get out. But the reality is that God didn't make a provision for that. In fact, listen very carefully, very carefully. Even in your unhappy marriage, even in your dissatisfied marriage, God has a plan for you. This is what Paul's message is to you. That even if you are in that situation, even though everything in you says you, send, you, you want to flee and, and you want to get out, God wants you to stay and to have faith in Him that He can use the situation for His glory and for your good. This is what Paul says in verse 13, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. In other words, God has a plan. 
Your focus may not be there right now, but God has a plan. He wants to use you in the midst of that unhappy situation. He wants to use your struggle. He wants to use your trial. He wants to use your uh, whatever you're going through. He wants to use it in the life, first of all, of your spouse. He wants to have a, a sanctifying influence even on them, meaning that, that uh, they might be more prone to go further into destruction and sin were it not for the fact that they knew that you were around and it's a constant sort of barb to their conscience and so they don't go as far as they would want to go. Or even listen to what Paul says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In other words, God is using you in the marriage that you're in, as, a, as difficult as it is, God is using you to point your children to Christ, to guard and protect them, to make them somewhat sanctified. The message that Paul has for all these people is God can and is using you right where you are. You're saying, well, how in the world could God use this marriage? How in the world could God use this sort of misery? How in the world can God use all of this sort of friction and tension that's always there? Well, God is. That's his message. That because of the impact of your life seeking God every day, that without you necessarily seeing the immediate fruit, without you realizing what's going on in the hearts of your children, or the hearts of your spouses, your spouse. Paul is telling you, God is telling you, they see. They're watching. They understand your faith. They see your strength. They understand your standing up to all of the difficulties and all the trials. They understand you returning good for evil. They understand you serving and all those things. So the believing spouse is not to seek a divorce, even if their spouse is an unbeliever. You are to entrust your situation to the Lord. Because he's going to use it in the life of your children. He's going to use it in the life of your spouse. They need the gospel. And you are one of the key instruments. There is no other option. There is, however, a situation that might be out of your control. Because while you may be willing, because of God's design to yield yourself to God's plan for this original marriage covenant, the reality is your spouse may not be. And as often happens as we see in real life, that while they are attacking you, while they are pushing you, while they're hoping to sort of uh, cause you to erupt and bolt and leave the marriage, when they finally realize that you are not going to break your covenant that you made to God, nor your covenant that you made to them, the reality is that more times than not, after a given time, they decide to leave. And Paul says, in that situation, you're not enslaved. If they leave, Paul says, let them leave. You're not to fight it. You're not to quarrel with them. In fact, he goes on to say, God's called you to peace. You're not supposed to try to make life as difficult as you can for that person. You're to continue to maintain your Christian witness and your Christian testimony to them. God's called you to peace. Now, they may, they may abandon you uh, because they're just simply tired of having to live with someone who's pursuing God and it is afflicting their conscience. They might decide to leave you because they want to somehow sort of have a different influence in the life of your children or they might leave you because they're just simply, uh, they're just simply tired of the conflict themselves. They might leave you because they just have a lustful heart and want someone else. There's all kinds of reasons. They might leave you because they are sort of engaged in some activity and get caught by the law and thrown into jail and, and therefore 
you know, they're, they're out of the house. All those sort of situations might arise and there might be abandonment, abandonment there. But in all those cases, Paul says, you're not bound. You're not enslaved. If they leave, you're free. That is to say, you're free from the original marriage covenant. Implying in that situation that once they separate and once they abandon the marriage, you're free to go ahead and remarry after the divorce. Now, some of you, I may not know the details of your background, but I wouldn't be surprised if some of you are sitting there and saying, it's too late. I've actually already been divorced. I've actually already been through this. I'm, I'm remarried or I've already found someone. What am I supposed to do? Well, while the Scripture's clear on this issue, that you, having violated the original covenant of your marriage, having become involved with someone else, you've committed adultery, while that is all true, it's also true that that adultery has legitimately dissolved that original covenant. So the answer, in other words, is not for you to now suddenly go back and try to dissolve your second marriage and go back and try to reinstate your first marriage to sort of go, sort of wind the clock back. In fact, that's exactly what Deuteronomy 24 was trying to legislate against. The answer is for you to align your thinking with God's Word. To confess and to acknowledge that you've been guilty of adulterous activity in the past. To confess and to acknowledge that that wasn't something God would have designed. To seek His forgiveness and to trust that because of the cross of Christ, His forgiveness is so much more abundant to wipe away any guilt and shame that you have and to be able to cleanse your conscience. And then to recommit yourself that within the context of your current marriage that you want to establish a testimony of faithfulness. You want to establish a testimony of righteousness. You want to yield yourself to God right where you are. It's so unfortunate that we live in a place where marriage is suffering the way it's suffering. The world is pursuing its own desires and lust through any means that it possibly can and is doing it blindly. Believing that God's way is no answer and believing that their way is the way of satisfaction, they pursue not only adulterous relationships, they pursue divorce at any convenience. As Christians, we shouldn't be so naive and we shouldn't be so deaf to the clear teaching of God's Word. God's placed you where you are and as imperfect as your relationship might be right now, God can use it. He is using it. He'll answer your prayers when you lift up your heart to Him He will allow you to shine as a light within the context of your home. It will be an impact and a burden on the conscience of your spouse, on the life of your children, on other people who are watching from the outside. Your life will be lived to the glory of God. And 1 Peter chapter 3 indicates that God, in many cases, uses your patient faithfulness to righteousness. God uses that to slowly begin to change the heart, the hardened heart of your spouse. Our place is just to yield ourselves to God, just to yield to His design and to trust that through His design, He'll work. Well, let's stand together and be dismissed with A word of prayer. Lord, these are weighty issues. 
So many of us were brought up in homes where divorce had happened. So many of us know friends and family members who've suffered through this devastation. Some of us here have gone through it ourselves. And Lord, we bow now with weighty hearts and grief to know that in so many ways your original design for marriage is not being pursued. People are not experiencing the grace and the gift that you intended through marriage. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling then where they are in the situation, either with guilt from past divorces or in unhappy marriages now. I pray, Father, that you would fill them with hearts of grace, that you would touch their life with your mercy. Help them to understand the abundance of your forgiveness in their life, that you cover every sin by the blood of Christ. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help them to apply that same grace and mercy in the context of where they live to their spouse on a daily basis. Lord, help us as a church to minister to these families, to continue to uphold what you uphold, to continue to point people back to what you originally designed, to help people to know that in any marriage, as long as there's God, there's hope. And we're so grateful for that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.